that we may be able, Father, to give you all glory and all honor as we live out what your word demands of us. You are God, creator. We are creation. And we submit ourselves to you humbly, God. Speak to us today. We give you all praise in Jesus' mighty name. Someone said, you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. That's good. Praise the name of Jesus. For the last few weeks, we've been dealing with the series, The Overcoming Church Focus, or the focus of those who are going to be part of what Jesus is calling his church to do, which is to be overcomers. We are supposed to overcome. That's the reason why, as we sing this song, death could not hold him down. We are declaring something powerful. We are making it very clear that we understand that Jesus is the victor. Jesus is victorious over sin. Jesus is victorious over every power principality. Jesus is victorious over any circumstance, any situation, anything that you or I may be facing or anything that we may face one day, whether we're facing something now or not. Jesus is victorious. Can I get a witness? He is victorious, and therefore, if Jesus is victorious, that means that you and I, as his children, should be victorious as well. That means that no matter what I'm going through today, I recognize that I am victorious because of what Jesus has declared and what he has been speaking to all of these churches at the end of every message. He has communicated to them, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. And he's communicating that because he wants you and I to be overcomers. He wants you and I to be those people who represent him within this earth. Now, does that mean that we will never have a bad day? Does that mean that every Sunday morning we are going to jump up and just kick our heels together and say, I'm ready to worship the Lord? Is that what that means? Is that what it, does it mean that I'm going to get up every Monday morning, you know, glory to God? ready to face challenges, ready to go again. Does it mean that every single day of my life, my spouse and I are never going to go at it? It just means I'm going to win every fight. No, I'm just joking. You know that is not happening in my home, glory to God. Y'all know my wife. I'm not winning every fight. Praise the Lord Jesus. She's usually right. I'm usually wrong. It just takes me a while to recognize it. Praise the Lord. Amen, amen, glory to God, amen, it's true, hallelujah. The reality is that we are not going to have a perfect life with no issues and no problems and things are going to happen, but that doesn't change the fact that we are victorious. It does not change the fact that we are called to be overcomers. It does not change the fact that Jesus died on the cross, paid a glorious price for you and I to grant us victory and not just grant us victory, but to guarantee us victory that's why he calls his church to be overcomers that's the reason why the title of this message or series of messages has been the overcoming church focus because what we realize is that we must be focused on the right stuff in order to be a church that is overcoming the world and the temptations and the trials and tribulation that we will face because the bible clearly says that if we want to live righteously if we want to follow jesus we are going to experience tribulation we are going to experience hardship. I don't know who lied to you. I know it wasn't me, and I know it wasn't anybody that's ever preached on this pulpit and told you. I heard of a preacher one time who actually said this, actually said, no longer do Christians go through trial. No longer do Christians go through hardship. No longer are there any of those type of things because we're living in this time. And I was like, are you kidding me? Just lying to folks. Because then you got people sitting down there going through hell and high water, wondering, well, what's wrong with me? Am I not a Christian? No, you are a Christian. 
and you're going to go through difficulty, but you are victorious. And that's what Jesus wants us to be focused on, on him, and that way we can walk in the victory. That's the reason why we have to be focused on what Jesus did for us. When we've looked at all of these churches, we've looked at six churches so far. This is the seventh church, and this is the one that we will deal with today. But from each of these churches, we have learned some do's and don'ts. And I'm not going to go over all of them this week, but the, but the next message that I preach, I will go over these do's and don'ts and I will break them down. And the reason is because of this, because it is important for us as we listen to these messages, and I hope that you are, as, as you're hearing them preached and taught, that you are sitting down and you are looking in the mirror of God's word and saying, how does this apply to me specifically? How does this apply to me? And in case you weren't doing that, I'm going to help you. Glory to God. Next week or the, or the next time I preach, I'm going to make sure to help you. And so what I want to do today is we're going to deal with this final church, the seventh church. And this church today is the church of Laodicea. This church is a church that was grossly deceived. Grossly deceived. That is the title of the message, the deceived church. This church was grossly deceived. And when I say, I mean, they were, it was, it was, it's crazy to look at them and say, man, they were deceived. But here's the thing. I want you to get this. They were not deceived like Pergamum. Remember Pergamum in the beginning, we talked about them. They were deceived because of false doctrine, because of bad teaching. That was why they were deceived because they were hearing teaching that was incorrect. They weren't deceived because of false teaching, nor were they deceived like the people of Thyatira. Remember Thyatira, they had the prophetess Jezebel there. Remember, they were deceived because of false prophecy. That was their deception. The church of Laodicea, they were not deceived because of false teaching. They were not deceived because of false prophecy. They were deceived in the worst kind of way. And it's called self-deception. For any person that is sitting in here, the worst type of deception we can ever be in is the type that we are deceived, that we believe our own lies. That is the worst deception. That we sit down and we hear and we think, you know what, I'm, I'm good. I'm okay. You're lying to yourself. And then one, and then after a while, you know, because here's what happens. We begin to try to, you know, because we're living in a day and age where everybody got to think positive, right? got to think positive. You got to proclaim positivity, right? Glory to God. You know, get, get those positive words out. That positive, that's the devil. Anyway, listen to me. Show, show me somewhere in your body. Oh, oh, Bishop, you know, the book of Proverbs says the power of death and life are in the tongue. Listen, but it doesn't say walk around speaking positive, denying reality. Is that what it says? No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says to declare the word of God, to live out the word of God. And so, you know, we live in this day and this age where, you know, we're, 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 we're prompted to declare positivity. We're prompted to declare, you know, everything is going to be all right. Everything is going to be good. And then you know what happens to us? After a while, we go through hardship, difficulty, whatever it is, and, 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 and we begin to believe, right, these things. We begin to believe, yeah, it's okay. And then we start to live for a while like everything is okay until we hit a cataclysmic moment in our life when we start to realize, man, everything is not okay. It's those moments when the rug gets pulled out of under you. Those moments in a marriage where someone finds out their spouse committed adultery. You lie to yourself all the way into that moment. Everything is okay. No, we're not having sex, but everything is okay. No, we're not talking, but everything is okay. Yeah, we don't do, we don't do anything together. Everything is okay. Lying to yourself. And then you find out one day that your spouse has committed adultery, and then what happens? And I'm not trying to belittle that. Listen, that is a devastating blow. But what happens? You believed your life for so long, and then the rug was pulled out of under you, and then you're left with this gaping hole in your soul because everything was not okay. You watch your kids growing up. For, the, for, for, for us that, you know, have children, we see this. You know, they're growing up when they're smaller, easier to control. Everything is good. And then, you know, they start growing up into these teenage years, right? I was thinking about my teenage years, you know, when I was preparing the message. And I'm like, man, when I was a teenager, I was horrible, disrespecting my mom. You know, Mother's Day start making you reflect on how horrible you were. At least it does for me. Start thinking about those years when you got rebellious, started disrespecting, started acting a fool and all of this type of stuff. And then you know what? You know what we do? Oh, well, our kids are going to be okay. Are they? Are they? What is the guarantee? You know how many people said their kids are going to be okay and their kids die in car accidents? 
Because they're out there drinking and driving. They're out there hanging out. And then they may not even be the ones drinking. Nowadays, they're just texting and driving. Hello. But you say everything is going to be okay. Everything, and, and we start believing the lie. It becomes the same thing for us as Christians. I don't pray. I don't read my Bible. It's all right, though. I still feel God when I come to church. I still cry sometimes when I get in his presence. So everything must be okay. It's a lie. Did you hear what I just said? It's a lie. We walk around like everything is all right. And we start to believe, well, we, we, and you know, as we were praying this morning, it hit me because I'm a firm believer in the grace of God. I'm a firm. Listen, I've been rocked by understanding the grace of God, by understanding that God's grace is sufficient. But I need you to understand something. Living under grace is not a license for you to live how you want to live. Living under grace is not a license for you to just say, well, I'm going to just do what I'm doing and I'm going to be okay because Jesus died on the cross. Yes, that is exactly why you shouldn't be living how you want to live. That is exactly why you should be on your face bawling and broken over your sin and over the way that you're living rather than being a hypocrite. One of the scariest doctrines, and we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks here. The scariest doctrine is the doctrine of grace. You want to know why? And I heard this, and, 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 and it's the truth. Pastor Tillian from Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, he said it. He said the doctrine of grace is the scariest doctrine there is because it strips all control from you. As a parent, it's the scariest doctrine there is. Why? Because it's not your job to control your kids. What do you mean, Bishop? I'm supposed to... I didn't say not guide them. I didn't say not correct them. I said control them. Because when they are not in your presence, you do not have control of them. That's what I mean. When they're not around you, you don't control their actions. You hope that you have instilled enough righteousness. You have instilled enough principle. You have shown them enough direction. And that way when they're out of your presence, they know how to act. And more importantly than knowing how to act, that they truly, if you're really a Christian, that they truly love Jesus and fear God. Because if they love Jesus and fear God, they know that mommy and daddy may not be there, but Jesus always is. And so your hope is that you have that. And so when we start talking about grace, it gets scary. Listen, as, a, as an overseer, as a leader in a church, it's scary because you know what? I get you for like three or four hours a week. I don't go home with you. And even if I did, you could go into a room and close your door. See, around me, you won't cuss. Some of you. Around me, you're not going to be like, oh, she is fine. Around me, you're not going to have those little Google. Not around me. Listen, around me, some of y'all won't even touch your spouse, glory to God, because you are so holy. I want to I I warn you, one day you're going to see me touch my wife and be like, wow, Bishop touched her. Yes, we have a daughter, glory to God. That didn't just happen because I was across the room saying, get pregnant. I'm not, and let, let, let me say it like this, because there, 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 there's got to be a balance. That doesn't mean I sit down, I'm going to show you, because I'm going to give you an example. That doesn't mean that I sit down in church, and I'm like, and, and don't get offended if you're sitting like this, just I didn't look at you. But, you know, you're sitting all up in church, you're all up on each other, glory to God, and just praise the Lord Jesus. And, you know, and look, listen, I'm going to give you, see, Adelina, I, I want to use her for an example. She puts her head on her husband's shoulder. I think it's the cutest thing. I'm not talking about that. Because y'all are going to look at Adelina in about 20 minutes. She's going to be like this on her husband's shoulder. You'll be like, Bishop just said, I'm not talking about that, glory to God. All right? She does that. That's why I don't know she gets tired of, you know, whatever. I don't know if she want to be close. Whatever. It's all good. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is, when you come to God's house, it's okay. Hold your wife's hand, whatever. But don't be all, you know, PDAing up in a place. Public displays of affection. That's what that is. Hello. PDA. And get it? Public display of affection. Get it? All right. Boom. All right. You got it. So good. Remember this, there's someone sitting behind you that can be distracted by all that. There's a time and a place for that. That doesn't mean there's not a place, I mean, for affection. When we're hearing the word of God, I think that you need to, you know, be honorable. When you're in worship, you shouldn't be holding your spouse's hand and not lifting them to Jesus. Hello. 
This is just me. I, I think that it's time for you and him to connect. And so we have this, you know, we have to have this understanding. We have to have this, 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 this understanding of the grace of God from the right perspective. Got to be from the right place. We got to have the right understanding of God's grace. Listen, his grace freed you not to sin. His grace freed you to pray fervently. His grace freed you to study and meditate upon the word of God. His grace freed you to be able to evangelize with boldness and without fear. His grace freed you to say no to your friends when they want to do foul things. And you as a child of God recognize Jesus died for me. He paid a price for me. Therefore, I will give him glory and by his grace, I will live it out. We have to understand grace from the right perspective. Understand the power of grace. And don't look at grace as permission for you to go and make a mockery of Jesus. I sound like I'm closing the message and I'm just opening glory to God. I haven't even got to my first point, praise Jesus. Listen, it is important for us to understand that Jesus is speaking to a church that is deceived. And that's the reason why this is coming across so hard. Because sadly, sadly, Faith Dome, we're not a big church, okay? We're not, we're not a little weak, wimpy church, but we're not some huge church. And sometimes we think, well, we're not this really big church. And so we think there may not be hypocrisy. Listen, I'm here to let you know that that is not true. There are some of you that sit in these seats week after week and you are grossly deceived. There are some of you who sit in this church week after week, and if you died today, Jesus would say, part from me, I never knew you. Yes, I'm talking to you. And if that bothers you, that's probably a sign that you need to repent. See, because we look at each other and we smile and we hug and we embrace and everything is cool. And that's good because we got brotherly love and we're all at different places in our walk with Christ. And I get all of that. But listen to me. There is one thing for you to be growing in grace. It is a whole different thing for you to have just, just like truncated and just stopped. Because you just decide, okay, we're good. I pray enough. I know enough Bible. I know enough of what needs to be. I have enough Christian language in my life. And so I'm good. No, you're not good. That was the issue with this church. Self-deception is the most blinding deception because it is based on our perception. When you are deceived, it is about the way you see things. Listen, caution yourself. When you are always saying, this is the way I see it, you could be dead wrong. This is the way I view things. Listen, we're all entitled to our opinions. That does not make our opinions factual. I want to deliver you from a mindset. I want to deliver you from a saying, perception is reality, not true. You can perceive something and think something and be dead off. That may be your reality, but that is not the reality. I can tell you numerous times, numerous occasions, many situations that I've experienced dealing with people where they perceive something about me or they perceive something about what I said or they perceived an action the wrong way and they were totally off. Oh, Bishop must be upset with me because he didn't say hi to me. No, Bishop was busy thinking about something and if he would have stopped to say hello to you, he would have missed doing what he had to do. Oh, Bishop must think he's all that because he walks around everybody. He don't. He said, "No, what are you? Are you kidding me?" Isn't we laugh? But people think that. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people. Did this what they'll say to me? And listen, if you feel this way, I'm not saying this to offend you. I'm hoping, I'm hoping it will liberate you. But people be like, yeah, you know, someone was offended because when they first came to the church, you know, you were always, you know, greeting them, saying hello. Now you barely even say hi to them. Are you serious? What do you think? I say, okay, well, they've been here for a month, so I greet them for a whole month straight, and then after that, I just leave them? No. Listen, perception is not reality. It is that perception. It's your perspective of reality. Your perspective of reality is always like three sides to every story, right? His side, her side, and the right side. God's side, right? That's what it is. His side, her side, God's side. 
And sometimes I'm on the right side. Sometimes she's on the right side. But the fact of the matter is, it's not always right. You see things differently. This church, poorly, grossly deceived. Jesus communicates to them and he talks to them. Say this with me. The testimony of Jesus must always trump any and every other testimony. What Jesus says must matter to us more than what anybody else says about us. Listen to me. Listen to what I'm going to say right now. Don't become overwhelmed with the praise of other people when you know you're not right. When people start telling you about how good you are at this and how wonderful you are at that, and you know in your heart, man, I'm slacking, don't let that comfort you. Because you know what we do? We start to look at people, and people start coming up. We know that we are lacking in an area of our life, whether it is being a good spouse, whether it is being a good student of the word, whether it is whatever the area is, and then somebody comes up to you and compliments you and says, man, I-, I wish I could be a spouse like you. And you know you are a horrible spouse. And you start thinking, man, I must not be that bad. The devil is a liar. That person, listen to me now, that person only sees one side of you. Their perception is, man, every time I see them, what about when they don't see you? So what do we do? We become comfortable. We're like, well, man, people are, listen, I have it, I have it. I, I, listen, I have it happen all the time. We'll be in prayer. Someone prays. Listen, and I appreciate, glory to God. I appreciate the prayers that folks pray for me. But I want to be real with you. I am a man just like any other man in this place. I struggle just like every other man on planet Earth. That's pretty broad. And sometimes you see me up here in the pulpit. You'll see me around this property. And I'm not a hypocrite by no means because I don't believe in being a hypocrite. But I am by far perfect. And there are areas in my life that I want to increase and I want to grow in. And when we're in, we'll be in prayer and some begin to pray for me and they're thanking God for me. And you know what? I can let that stuff go to my head and be like, man, I must be all right because they feel that way about me. Listen, you're not wrong to feel that way. The point of the matter is I have a choice to make. I can continue on in my consecration with God. I can continue on growing in grace. Or I can let that be the comfort I need rather than hearing the testimony of Jesus. Rather than getting before God, because you know what? God is not a hateful, just trying to spite you type God. He's not like that. He loves us, and we're going to get to that at, 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 at some point in this message. I don't know when. Mothers, I love y'all. Glory to God. <laughs> at some point, we will get there. But he loves us, and he charges us and speaks to us in this manner because he wants us not to suffer. The worst suffering, which is an eternity separated from him in hell. When Jesus communicates with this church, he says to them in verse 14, he says, To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. These things says the Amen. He introduces himself as the Amen. What does that mean? Amen is at the end of a prayer, isn't it? But he introduces himself as the Amen. This word is used in two places in scripture. It is used in the beginning of sayings. When Jesus says, verily, verily, it's like amen, amen. Of a truth. He's saying this is real. And then at the end of things, we'll see the word amen used. And it means so it is or so it shall be. And so what Jesus says is the way that I say that it is, that's how it's going to be. And at the end, you're going to see that what I said is exactly what I said. This is what he's saying. He's saying, I'm letting you know now this is how it is, and it's not going to change later on. I am the amen. From Before you even prayed, I am the amen. Before you did it, I am the amen. From the beginning, I'm telling you how it's going to be. So he's communicating to them and letting them know, listen, I know what's going on. He tells them he is the faithful witness. When he talks about being faithful, he's saying one who has proven being trustworthy. He has proven to them that he is trustworthy. How did he prove that? He went to the cross. He resurrected. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He proved he is faithful. 
And last week we talked about that word true. It means that he is the real deal. He is authentic, not fake, not imitation. He is real. And he comes to them and he shows them, I am the amen, I am the faithful, I am the true witness. And he is the beginning of the creation of God. What is he saying? He's saying, I am the source of all creation. He's not saying that he was the first created thing or that he is created. He is the source of all creation. He's helping them to understand something. Listen, you have your perception. You see things the way you see it. But I want you to know I am the amen. I am the faithful. I am the true witness. And if me being the amen telling you how it's going to be, if me being faithful showing that I'm trustworthy, if me being true and, and, and authentic and real is not enough, I want you to know I'm the source of creation. I want you to understand my testimony to you is what really matters. Because I'm the one who gave you life to breathe. I'm the one who is allowing you to live. Jesus shows himself this. And the Laodiceans, they had their own witness of themselves. He t- he, he, they communicate clearly. Look at what he says here. He says to them in verse 15 and 16, he says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say, this is your perception. Verse 17, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. That was their perception. I'm rich. I've become wealthy. So not only do I have, but I'm continuing to grow in the things that I have. And I have need of nothing. Jesus is like, wait a second have a totally different perspective. Jesus makes it clear that he was the witness they needed to hear. They were blinded by their self-deception. I want you to get that word, self-deception. I want you to understand that word, self-deception. They were deceived by themselves because what they did was they looked around at everything. They looked around at everything. They saw their comforts. They saw all of the apparent blessing. And they were like, man, we're good. God has blessed us abundantly. When you look at churches today in our world, they, they measure everything by the ABCs, right? It's the ABCs of church. So we measure it by attendance. We, we measure our success by buildings, and we measure our success by cash flow. Attendance, buildings, and cash flow. When you come to a business meeting, people want to hear about those things. They want to hear about the attendance. They want to see what has gone from last year. They want to see the buildings, and obviously, you know, they want to see where you're at, and they want to see the cash flow. How's the cash flow going? And if you have attendance, you have buildings and cash flow, you're a successful church. You're doing a great job. Not in Jesus' eyes. Repeat this with me. Temp- temporal comfort and abundant blessing can be our greatest detriment. Temporal comfort and abundant blessing can be our greatest detriment. We all want to get comfortable. Let me say, I'm going to say this to you from the perspective of us as a church. This building, I rejoice in this place. I walk in here and I'm like, I'm like, glory to God. You know, we're doing, we doing work in here and I'm like, man, praise God. This is a beautiful place. My wife, you know, did a great job and, you know, picking colors and, you know, getting everything. And everybody who worked in here, we've done a great job. And I'm like, glory to God, man. This is a beautiful place. Walking out there, see, you know, tile. I'm like, man, this thing is not going to my office. I'm like, glory to God. This is amazing. I just sit there sometimes, and I'm, like, studying. I just got to, like, take a pause, like a praise break, and be like, praise God, this is an awesome office. It's, you know, I mean, it's wonderful going to children's church, see the room over there. I sit, I sit in the admin office. I'm like, praise God, Pastor Aldo has an office. This is awesome. This can be our greatest detriment. Because we can walk in here, and we, and we can forget we need to continue to sacrifice more and more for Jesus. We can forget We haven't arrived. We can forget it's not just about a building. We can forget it's not just about the right color selection, the right color scheme, the right decorations. It's not just about all of that. But it is about making sure that the gospel is communicated to as many souls as possible. And for us as individuals in our individual lives, when we look around ourselves, you know what we'll be able to see? We begin to see our our decent house. We begin to see our decent car. We begin to see our family's okay. And you know what we can do? I'm chilling. There's no passion like we read in Psalm 42. You're, you're not, I mean, I mean, be real. Just think about it. You don't have to raise your hand because I don't want to embarrass you. 
And I don't want to make you lie, you know, because some of y'all just lie just because you don't want to want to think that this is you. I know. But, I mean, are you really, like the psalmist said, thirsting after him as the deer pants for the water brooks? You understand the language? A deer running out in the desert, running away from, you know, a cheetah. Throw a little Dave Ramsey in there for y'all. Right? This deer running, running, hopping left, hopping right. Finally, cheetah gets tired. Doesn't catch the deer. And the deer is like parched, ready to die. Panting for the water brooks. Can't wait to get into the presence of that stream so they can drink. Is that you for God? Or you wake up in the morning and be like, well, you know, I don't know if I'm going to come to prayer today. Go through a problem. You'll be here at 830. Go through a problem. You'll be text messaging, calling, please pray for me. Please keep me in prayer. I'm going through this. Listen, you'll, you'll, you'll lose weight. You don't need a diet. You need a problem. Some of y'all want to lose weight? Just pray for problems. God, bring me some hardship. You will stop eating because of two things. Number one, you will be just overwhelmed with grief and sorrow. You won't be hungry. The other reason, because you will be fasting, crying out to God, saying, God, bring a breakthrough in my life. Bring a breakthrough. Listen, the mo- I have seen people at their most spiritual when they are going through divorces. Why? Because they are crying out to God. They are doing everything by the book trying to save that marriage. But you know what I've also seen? After the divorce, crash and burn. Because God didn't do what you wanted him to do. Therefore, what do you do? You leave God. You start living how you're going to live. Hear me. What am I saying? What I'm saying is we have to recognize that our comforts and commodities and all of those things that are a parent blessing in our life, man, don't let those things consume us. Don't let those things be the, 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 the reason why we don't hunger after him. The reason why we don't seek him as he ought to be sought. Listen, God died. Jesus died on the cross for you and I. No matter what I have, I should hunger for him more. No matter what I have been granted, the comfort that I live in. Listen, our greatest problem in the United States is we're too comfortable. Listen, Anna is sitting over there by the AC control. You know why? Because she wants to make sure everyone is comfortable. Are y'all comfortable? Because I'm hot right now, glory to God. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. See, that's how that works, right? I just throw her in there, get a little AC going, we'll be good to go. Glory to God. We're too comfortable. Everything is comfort. Laodicea, this is a city. Now, I want you to know this. This city, the reason why this church says this, says because in verse 17, says, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. They're saying that because Laodicea was a city that was a wealthy city. This is a city that they were, they, 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 were, they were a trade center. They were a banker's city. They were a city that had money. The church, they weren't hurting. The church was good. They were okay. Everything was fine with them. They were wealthy. They were benefactors of the city. Listen, when I pray, here, here, here's something that I want you to realize. The hardest person to evangelize for us as Christians, you want to know who it is? The wealthy. You want to know why? I'm going to tell you why. Two reasons. Self-deception is the, is, is, is the umbrella for both of these reasons. But understand this. The reason why it is so hard for us to minister to wealthy people is because, number one, we are deceived. You know Why? Because we feel like they don't need anything that we have to offer them. It's because we don't understand the gospel. Jesus didn't die so you could be rich. He died so you could go to heaven. No matter how much money you have, you can go to hell. 
And when you and I understand that, we won't be so fearful to share with someone who's banking and driving the nice car because you're not telling them, hey, Jesus is going to give you a nice car. You're not telling them, hey, Jesus is going to fix your marriage. You're telling them, hey, Jesus is going to deliver you from hell. So that's the first reason why it's hard for us. The second reason is because of their deception. Because they say, I'm rich. I'm wealthy. I have need of nothing. The same thing for this church in Laodicea. They came to this place. They're like, man, we're good. Everything is okay. And apparently, this church wasn't highly persecuted because there's no talk of persecution. They were okay in their city. And the reason why they were in that condition is because they were lukewarm. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment. And they felt they're rich, wealthy, had need of nothing. Yet Jesus sees it much different. What does Jesus say to them? In Jesus' eyes, he says, you are wretched, you are miserable, you are poor, you are blind, you are naked. You think you're rich, you think you're wealthy, you think you have need of nothing. I'm here to let you know, you are wretched. They didn't realize how wretched they were. They didn't realize that they were not right with God because everything around them looked good didn't make them right with him. They didn't get that. They didn't understand that. They were missing it. They were wretched. They were miserable. You know what that word miserable means? It means to be pitied. You know, when you see somebody on the street that is a beggar, someone who is homeless, that's a person that we usually have pity for. That's what he was saying about them. He's saying, you think everything is good. You think, you, you, you think everything is all right. But you are to be pitied. He tells them, you are poor. You know what the definition of poor is? The opposite of rich. You can laugh, man. It was a joke. It was a little joke. The word poor means to be beggarly. They were beggars. In God's eyes, they were like the homeless person on the side of the street. While they were sitting in this nice building and everything was all good and they were comfortable and they were coming to church and everybody was smiling and everything, God is saying, man, you guys look like a bunch of homeless people to me that need help. That's what he was saying. He's saying, you, this is how you look to me. You think you're okay. He told them, you are blind. You can't see. And you are naked. Naked. That meant that they were vulnerable. They were ashamed. He said this to them. He's community saying, listen, you guys think it's all good. It's not. Their blindness was due to their lukewarmness, to their lukewarm state. This was the product of their surrounding temporal comfort and their apparent, and their apparent blessing. What do you mean? What I mean is this. They were lukewarm. He says, I could wish that you were either hot or cold. I want you to understand something. There is one type of real Christian and that is one that is hot. Did you hear what I just said? There is one type of real Christian. If you are not hot, that means on fire, boiling for Jesus, you need to question where you are with him. Because you have to question if you really know him or not. Does that mean we're not going to have moments? I already told you about that. I answered that question at the beginning of the message. We'll have our moments. We're going to have our ups and downs and all of that stuff. But here's the thing. If there's not a fire burning in your heart, you have to question where you are with him. Because if that fire was burning at one time and it is no longer burning, I'm here to warn you, you are backsliding. Understand what happened to this church. This church could not be lukewarm unless they were boiling hot at one point. Understand this. He said you are lukewarm. You were boiling at one time. If they were never boiling, they would not be a church. Understand that. If they were never boiling, they would not be able to be a church. He says to them, I could wish that you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. He says, I wish you were either cold, ice cold is what he's saying. I wish that you were freezing. In other words, totally lost and depraved and out there because then when I speak to you, you would repent. Then when I talk to you, you would feel, when the heat comes, it would, it would radically change the environment of your life. See, when you are cold, what happens is when the fire of God comes, whether it's a preaching of a message, whether it's an encouragement, a challenge, a rebuke, what happens is in the cold state that you are, you feel something shaking you. 
You feel something occurring inside of you. When you are lukewarm, not so. Because here's what happens. When something is cold and you put heat to it, you know what it has to do? It has to pass from cold to lukewarm to get to hot. You're already lukewarm. So when the heat hits you, it takes a lot longer to affect you. Remember what I said? You're only here for like three hours a week. I probably preach for two hours between Wednesdays and Sundays. Therefore, what happens? You're only there in the heat. Oh, glory to God. For two hours. And so right about the time that you were about to get past lukewarm, you go home and get back into your rut. Cold. I wish you were cold. I wish I could radically change you. Or I wish you were hot. I wish you were hot because then you would be able to do something about these lukewarm folk. See, because if you're hot, right? We'll just use it, husband and wife. If you're hot on fire for Jesus, yeah, your spouse is going to be hating it sometimes. Hello. Especially if they're lukewarm because you're challenging them to pray. You're challenging them to be in their Bible. You're not being a nag. Men can nag too. Hello. I was like, that was like a triple amen. Like, amen, amen. Amen. It's like an in harmony. Amen. (laughs) But you're on fire for Jesus? Your spouse is not? Listen. They see you getting up early to pray, and they don't, they don't see you because they're laying in the bed, and, you know, they reach over. You're not there. Where are they at? They get worried, come look for you. They find you on your face, crying before the Lord. They find you in the Word. That communicates something to them. If your spouse finds you going to bed early instead of staying up late watching the programs on TV with them, your spouse sees that you're not doing those things because you're on fire for Jesus. You love him with all of your heart. You're not trying to be disrespectful, but the fact is you have a greater commitment to him. Therefore, you're walking out that devotion. You want to know what happens? Your spouse begins to be affected by the heat because even though they're lukewarm, after a time, the stuff's going to start to boil. And they will do one of two things. They will either reject and they will, they will fight or they will repent of their sin. One of the two. One of the two, bottom line. So what am I telling you? What I'm telling you is this, but here's the danger. This is the danger. The danger in marriage is this. And this is what happens in, I would say, probably 99.9% of marriages. When you have one person who is on fire, and I've seen this happen, we have retreats, awesome encounters with the Lord. Person gets touched by the Lord. The fire of God comes and invades their life. They begin to be stirred up. The other spouse is like lukewarm. They're just like right there in the middle. You know what happens is they allow the lukewarmness to overwhelm them rather than overwhelm the lukewarmness. And then before you know it, you're both just on cruise control. Can I let you know when you're on cruise control, you are backsliding. You think you're going forward, but you are going in reverse. See, because here's the thing you got to realize. We are swimming upstream. We are, moving in, we, we are moving against the current of culture, against the current of society. We are moving against the culture. Therefore, when I hit cruise control, when I go on ahead, so you got to look at it like this. If I'm doing that, I'm in a boat. And if I decide that I'm going to go ahead and pull the motor out of the boat and I'm going upstream, I got some momentum and I'm moving. But once I stop having the thing that is propelling me and moving me forward, you know what begins to happen? The current begins to take control of me and I begin to go backwards and because I'm facing forward I think I'm moving in that direction but it is deceiving you want to know why I had had to do driving school the other day horrible situation really bad let me tell you Driving school is really like, it's the worst thing on the earth because you're like sitting, especially when doing it on the internet because I'm like the type, I sit there and I start falling asleep and then I got to answer questions and I'm like, I'm like, man, this is horrible. So anyway, just, you know, don't get tickets, okay? But anyway, got a ticket, had to take driving school. So I'm sitting there taking driving school and, and you know, and, and usually, I'll be honest with you, I never pay attention enough to learn anything when I'm in driving school. Probably the reason why I get a ticket. Anyway, we'll move on from there. Thank God this is not about heaven, right? So... I'm sitting down, I'm, I'm watching driving school this time, and I actually learned something. I learned 
How do you know when you can do, you know, you know when you're in a, in a, in a you got the yellow lines, right? Saying that you can pass the yellow, you know, dotted lines, whatever, right? So, you know, you can pass. You're in a two-lane road and you want to pass someone. How do you know that it's okay to pass? How do you know? How, how do, now, now, you know because of the dotted lines. But when you're looking, you're judging, right? How do you know I have enough room to make it? You know what the answer is? The answer is when the car that you're looking at looks like it's not moving, you can make the pass. Now, here's what I want you to understand. While I'm doing 55 miles an hour, that car's probably doing the same speed. It looks like it's far away. It looks like it's not moving. For us as Christians, that's how heaven looks. It looks like it's not moving, but you don't realize it's coming. You see, while you are here, you think you're moving forward. It's not moving. It's still in the same place, but you're not. You got to understand something. As a Christian, you have to realize you hit cruise control, you get lukewarm, you allow your spouse, your friends, your neighbors, other Christians to pull you down that route of being lukewarm and you start compromising in areas and you want to know what happens? You think you're going forward because heaven's not moving, but you are backwards. This church, blind, poor, Naked, vulnerable. They were lukewarm. This is the reason why there wasn't persecution. Because when you are lukewarm, you know enough church lingo to get around church folk and you fit in. But you know enough of the world lingo to get around them and you fit in. See, in our society, listen to me. They want you to be morally right and not love Jesus. Because it fits the mold. We don't need God in order to do right. So they want you to do right things. They don't want you to be acting a fool. Listen, you go around all these fools. They don't want you to be acting stupid. They don't want you to be acting foolish because that's not right. But it's not for the right reasons. And so what happens? You don't get persecuted for being a Christian because you could talk the language just like the rest of them. When you get around Christian folk, everything is good. Listen, there is an issue when you offend no one in your life. That is not a Christian. When every non-Christian just loves you to death... There was an issue. And I'm not saying you're a heathen, but I'm going to let you know what. You're probably not speaking up enough for Jesus. You're definitely not taking a stand for Jesus. Because when you start standing up for Jesus, trust me, all hell will break loose around you. And folk will not be wanting to be hanging out with you because they just don't. I told you all my testimony, and I'll say it in like two minutes. When I got saved, all my friends, they were all heathens out there smoking out, doing all their thing. And I used to go and hang out with them because I got saved. Didn't mean that I was going to stop hanging out with them, at least in my opinion. I was strong enough in Christ to do it. I go around them, hanging out with them. They're smoking out, getting high, doing everything. You know what I'm doing? Preaching Jesus. I want you to know high people don't want to hear about Jesus. They definitely don't want to hear about going to hell. They definitely don't want to hear about the fact that if they die today, they're, they don't want to hear that. And so you know what they did? They stopped hanging out with me. But you want to know what else they did? When they started going through problems, you know who they came to? They knew where to come. They came to Jesus through me. And, that's, and, and that is what it means to be a Christian when you are living a life that is not lukewarm. The third thing, repeat this after me. God's rebuke is a sure sign of his love. He says in verse 17, he says, Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent." Jesus' intense rebuke followed, is followed by counsel and affirmation of his love. This is the heart of God found within any rebuke. The reason why I preach as hard as I do and this morning extra hard is because I love you passionately. But I want you to know something. Jesus loves you more than me on any given day. He loves you more than me every moment. He loves you more. He loves you passionately. And the reason why I share with you the way I do is because to some extent, not fully, I understand how much Jesus loves you. To some extent, I realize this. And what I want you to get is that if you are sitting in here and you are deceived, please wake up. 
please open your eyes. Your Savior is calling you today. He is saying, don't live in this lukewarm lifestyle. Stop looking around at everybody else. Stop considering yourself to be okay when you are really not. Stop feeling like everything is good when it is not. Look at the mirror of his word. Let your life look in the reflection of God's word and come to the understanding of what it is that he is calling you to do. The Laodicean church, again, it was known because it was a wealthy church. I mean, it was a wealthy city. But this city was known for its wealth, for its wool, and for its medicine. And so they were a city that had, that, that had commerce. They were a city that was, that was like a bank. They were a city that had wool. And so what they did is they made these garments, and that's why he talks to them about clothing themselves. Because they thought, well, you know what? We have money. We don't need money. We have clothing. We're clothed. We're not naked. They go ahead, and they have this medicine. That people come and they, they get for their eyes when they have issues and they come there and they're being healed. And so we have the stuff for our eyes. We have the wool that we need. We have the wealth. We're okay. Jesus counsels them and he tells them the first thing is to get from them gold that is refined in the fire. He is saying get something that really has value. Because what you have done is you have lost what really what is really valuable. You have lost focus on what really matters. You've lost focus. You have lost focus on what really, really matters. Buy from me gold refined in the fire. And garments, white garments. Not any kind of garments. White garments. Garments of righteousness because you've lost your clothing. You think you're walking around and everything is good, but you know what Jesus says, and I love it. He says, buy for me white garments that you may be clothed and that your shame, that you will not, listen, so that way they will not be able to see it. You know what Jesus is saying? I see where you're at, but I don't want anybody else to see it. And the worst thing is I don't want you to come before me on judgment day, and be really shamed. Because if you're not wearing my robes of righteousness, you have issues. Buy from me. What is he saying? He's saying buy from me. Is he saying come and buy something like you got money? You know what he's doing to this church? He's telling these people here. He's letting them know, listen, you do not have the resources to get what you really need. The Bible tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes that money answers everything on the earth, right? The Bible says. You have a problem, your car breaks down, you have money, guess what you can do? Get the car fixed or buy a new car. That's the bottom line. Something breaks in your house, the same thing. You're not stressing, you're not worried, you're not overwhelmed. What do you do? You go, you get it fixed. You have money, you can do it. You want to go on vacation, you have money, you can do that. Simple. And we get comfortable because we have something in the bank. We're okay. But you know what he's saying? He's saying, come and buy from me. In Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1, it tells you to come and buy from me, all you who have no money. And what he's saying to them is this. He's saying, listen, you don't, you, you're not able to buy what you need. I already paid the price for it. And we have to come to the place that we recognize, man, no matter what I have, I can't purchase what I really need. No matter what I have possession of, I can't purchase what I need. I can't cover myself. I can't do that. And it's not until we come to that place that we recognize our need for the Savior. It is not until we come to that place that we fully understand the grace of God. He tells them, I want you to have true riches. I want you to add value to yourself. I want you to get clothing, white garments, my righteousness, my character. I want you to add the covering that you need. And I want you to anoint your eyes with this eye salve of heaven. And what he is saying is, the Holy Spirit illuminates our eyes. What he wants us to do is he wants to restore right vision. He wants us to see reality. Not our perception. He wants us to see the truth. And when the Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes, you know what he does? He turns the lights on. He turns the lights on. And what do the lights do? The lights show you what's really going on. 
Walk around your house. You know, you, you, you know where everything is in your house. You know where your table is. You know where your nightstand is. You know, you know where your dress, you know where everything is. Let one of your children come into your room when you are not there and throw a heel upside down. And you go walk into the restroom in the middle of the night in the dark. Glory to God. You will definitely have a test of your faith at that moment that you come across that floor and you step on that heel and you realize, I didn't put that there. Listen, when you turn on the light, what happens? You see it. But you know why you don't turn on the light? I'm going to tell you why you don't turn on the light in the middle of the night. Because you want to stay asleep. Because if you turn the light on, guess what happens? Pupils start dilating. You go into the, you go, you know, you go, you go into the bathroom. You know, listen, I, we don't turn on no lights when we go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Why? Because I don't want to wake myself up. I have to do something, but I, I, I know enough to keep, you know, keep it going and I can get back. And I'll be right back asleep. I turn the lights on, I'm awake. It's going to be two hours before I fall asleep again. If I can fall asleep again. It's the same thing with us as Christians, man. We don't want to turn the lights on. We want to stay sleeping. We want to stay comfortable. Listen, the lights are on today. I hope you see all your mess, all them heels, glory to God, all them holes, all, 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 all that craziness going on around you. But he doesn't, want, he, he doesn't just want us to see outside. He wants us to see inside. He doesn't just want us to see what's going on around us. He wants to see what's going on inside of us. Because that's where lukewarmness comes from, inside of us. We can be surrounded by comfort. We can be surrounded by all kind of stuff. And we can still struggle because of what's going on inside of us. And so it is important for us to get the eye salve of heaven, which is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And you understand this. Jesus paid the price so the way you and I could have the riches that are, real, that are real riches, so we could have the clothing that is real clothing, so that we could have the vision that is real vision, and that we would not see things from a place of perspective, but we would see things from the place of his reality. In closing, I want you to notice what Jesus says here. He says this in verse 19. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. As many as I love. I want you to get this for a moment. This is important. This is not the word agape for love. Different word. The word that is used here, those who I love, he uses the word phileo. Phileo is brotherly, family. It is a relational love. I want you to understand what I'm about to say. God does not phileo everybody. God agapes everybody. How do I know that? John 3.16. For God so loved the world. What is agape? What is the difference? Agape is God's unconditional, benevolent love. You and I understand we are sinners. We are damned to hell because of our sin. That's the bottom line. We are born into sin. If we die without Jesus, we will spend eternity in hell. That's it. Sounds bad, but I want you to understand something. Jesus died because he loved you unconditionally. He died. He died so that way you would not have to spend eternity in hell. That's what he died for. He died so that way you and I would be able to have eternal life with him. He loves everyone unconditionally with the agape love. That's for everybody. Whether you're a sinner, a person who doesn't love Jesus, a person who's not walking with him, he still loves you. He demonstrates his love for you in this. While we were yet sinners, while we were sinners, he died for us. He shows us that he loves us. But he doesn't phileo everyone. He only phileos those he's in relationship with. Why is that important? Because there's two people in this place. There's the person who is just not walking with Jesus in here. Two people that, that, that God is dealing with specifically. 
The one that's not walking with Jesus, he agapes you. He doesn't phileo you. You don't know him. He doesn't know you like that. But today he calls you to repent. He says, come. He said, I want to give you real life. That's what he says. He says, turn away from your sin. But then there is the other person. The other person is the one that you have had a relationship with Jesus. You've had some level of encounter with him. And you've talked with him. You've, you've, you've been in his word. And you've had some experiences with him. Whatever it is. And yet, you're lukewarm. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, listen, if you remain lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out. Now, I want you to know when we vomit, it's because we put something inside of us that we were unknowingly putting inside of us. Usually, we eat something bad or we eat something that we're allergic to. Very few times do we intentionally ingest something because we want to vomit. Anybody enjoy vomiting in here? No, it's probably the worst experience on the planet, right? Probably next to childbirth, right? Because I've never given, you know, birth to a child, but I'm sure ladies are like, yeah, Bishop, that's a little worse, but okay. (laughs) But none of us ingest stuff intentionally. Here's what I want you to understand. When we vomit, it's usually an accident. Something that we we didn't intend to do. I want you to know God doesn't make accidents. God doesn't make mistakes, right? He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't fall short. He doesn't like, oh, you know, I accidentally ingested this. That isn't what happened. What happened is these people became part of him. And they decided that they were going to become lukewarm because they continued to go with the flow instead of submitting themselves unto God. They became lukewarm. And now God says, you're part of me, but you're about to be vomited out of me unless you repent. So two people, the one person, you don't know Jesus. Today's an awesome day for you. He wants you to know that he loves you and he wants to save you from your sins. I'm not here to promise you a great life, perfect life. I'm here to promise you that you will have eternal life. And then there is the other person. And the other person is the one who you've had a relationship and you know that God is talking to you. And it is high time that you repent and stop living for yourself and living how you want to live. Those are the two people that he's talking to today. And then there's a third person. You're doing all right with God. But listen to me. Don't lie to yourself. Because that third group, hear me, is real easy to be deceived. I'm good. You look around at everybody around you, be like, well, you know, yeah, they need Jesus more than me. You're right. They probably need Jesus more than you. That doesn't mean you don't need Jesus. That's the issue. Is that you look at everyone who needs Jesus more than you, and you start thinking, I don't need Jesus. You start looking at everybody else around you who needs more deliverance, who needs more healing, who needs more of whatever it is that they need, and we, no. Look at your need for him. Here's the bottom line. Jesus says to them, he communicates and he says to them, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. This is rebuke and chastening. Therefore, be zealous and repent. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, I want you to understand how grossly this church is deceived. Now, can you imagine that this would be absolutely ridiculous, right? If you came to church, you walked into this building and you're like, yeah, Bishop is here, right? All of service goes on. Yeah, Bishop is here. Bishop is there somewhere. The preaching starts, and I'm standing out in the parking lot. Yeah, Bishop is in. No, I'm not in the building. I'm outside. You would be deceived. That would be foolish of you, right, to be, like, not seeing me and thinking I'm here. That would be dumb. This church, dumb. Where is Jesus? He's standing outside the door. He's not in the church anymore. This is how grossly they were deceived. Not only did they think they were rich, not only did they think they were growing in wealth, not only did they think they had need of nothing, but they thought Jesus was still there. They thought Jesus was still in their midst. Jesus had left the building. He's outside of the church now. He's knocking on the door. Not only is he knocking, but he's calling to them. He's saying, son, daughter, let me in. So he's out there knocking. You know how you, you, know, you knock at someone's house that you know? And you're like, yo, Jay, what's up, man? I'm here. Hello. Whoever it is. That's, you know, someone coming to my house, one of my brothers, right, calling me. Be like, yo, what's up, bro? You start calling the phone, you know, blowing it up. Yo, I'm out here at the front door. That's Jesus on the church's door. That's Jesus on the door of some of your hearts in here today. And I'm not talking about those who don't know. I'm talking about you who profess to know him. He is outside. You think he is still there? He is not. He is outside knocking and saying, open up to me. Let me come in. 
This is what he's communicating. Open up to me. Let me come in. They were grossly deceived. They thought everything was good. The worst part of it is that Jesus wasn't even in their midst anymore. Jesus wasn't even coming to their services anymore. And they thought they were okay. Horrible deception. And there's some of us that are in here that are like that. I love what Jesus says, though. He, t- he, he rebukes them on a collective level. But then he makes it personal. And he says this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice, if anyone, if anyone, if anyone hears my voice, if anyone hears my voice, one person, if you as in, don't wait, listen, this is why this is important. Don't wait for your spouse to respond. If you hear God talking to you, you respond. Don't wait for the person on the end of the row to raise their hand or move out of the way. You go ahead and get up and come to the front if that's what God is telling you to do. Here's what I'm saying. Don't wait for everyone else to respond. You have an individual responsibility to reply. And he says, if they're open, I'll come in and I will dine with them. And I love this. Jesus wants to turn the dining room into a throne room. He wants to walk in, and he wants to show you his glory like you've never seen it. He wants to take your casual everyday and turn it into the glory of God. He wants to absolutely rock your life in such an amazing manner. He says, I will come in and eat with them, and they will eat with me. This is promise. So are you going to respond? Stand to your feet, please, and bow your heads. And I will say it like this, you heard God knocking, you heard God calling.